while you're turning there, a great promise. And we're going to be talking a lot about the promises of God tonight and how important they are in our walk with God. One of the great uh, verses in the Old Testament, Psalm 106, verse 12, they believed his promises, they sang praises to him. I love that. If I truly embrace and believe the promises of God, I think it's going to cause me to worship the Lord. If I don't truly believe those promises, and obviously, you know, not, but the Bible says if I believe the promises of God, I will sing praises to that God. And that's what Psalm 106, 12 reminds us of. I want to just go back to the end of chapter 8 before we jump into chapter 9 because it does bridge between chapter 8 and chapter 9 to this respect. At the end of chapter 8, there's this great couple of verses about the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. In fact, let me read those verses for you because these may be encouraging to you tonight as well. Paul says in Romans 8, 38, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now, If that be true, Paul was realizing that there could be uh, some question to that, especially especially from his Jewish brothers and sisters, uh, because he knew he might get some question about that. If nothing can separate us from God's love, how can God forget his chosen people and the promises that he made to them in the Old Testament? And that's where Paul then comes into chapter 9 and begins to talk to his Jewish brothers and sisters. Now, I realize that most of us in the room tonight are probably not Jewish. We would be considered Gentile. If you're here tonight and you are Jewish, we are so glad to have you here tonight. But most of us probably here tonight are Gentiles. So many of you are going to be asking as we go through chapter 9, 10, and 11 in the next few weeks, Well, what does this message to the Jew then have to do with me, a Gentile? How can I apply this to my life? I think you're going to see that tonight before we get through. Notice Paul then begins chapter 9 by first saying this. He first reminds his Jewish brothers and sisters about his concern for them. You see, there came to be this belief that when Paul accepted Christ as his Savior and sort of turned his back on what he had had grown up with, that somehow he, he became, became anti-Jewish, that he was no longer concerned about, about his heritage and being Jewish and about his Jewish brothers and sisters. But you'll notice here, he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying, for my conscience assures me in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. First of all, I want you to see Paul's concern over Israel's present predicament and notice the love that Paul has for them. In verse 3, he says, I wish that there was some way, even though I can't be separated from the love of God in Christ, I, I wish somehow I could be cut off from Christ if it meant you coming to Christ. That's the kind of love that Paul had for his Jewish brothers and sisters, to see them brought to Jesus Christ. And the challenge right there before me was this. Do I have that kind of love and concern for people who don't know Jesus Christ yet? And Paul is really sharing here what Jesus taught. Greater love has no man than this, John thirteen thirty five, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Paul is basically saying, if I could, I would, I would lay down my life for you. I would be cut off from Christ if somehow, by me doing that, it could bring you to Christ. What love. What love. I hope that as I go through this next week, that God will even take this verse out of the book of Romans and tell me, Jeff, be more compassionate and sensitive to those who don't know Christ around you. Remember what it was like before Christ. If you get the opportunity to share Christ, do so. Have that kind of love for them. That's what Jesus is calling us to do, to take the good news about Jesus Christ and to take it to a world that doesn't know Jesus Christ yet. And, and you know what? The greatest motivation for all of us to do that is to have a heart filled with the love of God. Because if my heart is filled with God's love, 
and, and love for God and love for people, I'm going to be like Paul. I'm going to do whatever it takes to try to bring Christ to those people. But you'll notice here, Paul says this, look, God, this, this is not about God's unfaithfulness. If Israel as a nation is not realizing the promises that God has given in the Old Testament, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that many of the promises given to Israel, like many of the promises given to us, are conditional. It's not, well, I'll do this in spite of what you do. It's, I'll do this if you do this. We all know what those conditional promises are, because if we read our Bible, usually it's couched in some kind of language where God says, if you do this, then I'll do this. That's a conditional promise. And so the, the reason that Paul is sharing that is he's saying, here's why Israel as a nation hasn't seen fulfillment of those promises. If they're conditional, it's because Israel was unfaithful. It's not because God was unfaithful, because God is true to his promises. And if God promises us something, then he's going to do it if we fulfill our end of the bargain. Now, there are some promises in the Bible, Old and New Testament, that are unconditional. Uh, the promise given to Noah in the book of Genesis, I will never destroy the earth by a flood ever again. It had nothing to do with what we did or not. That was just a promise that God laid down and said, that's the way it is. But there are many promises in the Bible that are conditional. They are based upon our faith and our obedience. And Paul is reminding them here that the reason you're not seeing those promises fulfilled in your life is, first of all, you haven't come to embrace God because you're rejecting your Messiah, Jesus Christ. And you're not coming to God in faith and obedience. Therefore, you're not able to enjoy those promises. Notice, in fact, Paul points out beginning in verse 4 and 5 that Israel was given great privileges and promises by God. But instead of using the privileges that God gave them to draw them closer to God, it never worked out that way for the most part in general. Notice, he says, to them belong the adoption as sons, the glory. They saw the glory of God with their own eyeballs, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. To them, to them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. From them and by human descent, here's the most important thing. God chose through the nation of Israel to send the Messiah, Jesus Christ. What a privilege that out of all the people groups in the world, God chose Israel that, that Jesus, the Messiah, would be a Jew and that salvation would come from the Jews. That's what he says. What a great privilege. And so he says, to them came Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And here's the point I want to make. They had all these privileges, but they did not realize that with those privileges came responsibility. And instead of using all the privileges that God gave them to draw them closer to God, it really didn't work that way for the most part in their lives. And so Paul is also then saying to us as Gentiles, be careful. Be careful that all the privileges that God gives to us, that we don't take those privileges for granted and that we don't, you know, take advantage of those opportunities as full as we could. For instance, we now have a great privilege of, of coming every Tuesday night and being in a place like this to open the Bible, to worship God, to look in his, what a great privilege. But we got to be careful that we look at that properly instead of taking it for granted that we thank God for it, that we praise God for it, that we take advantage of it in the right way and that we take those opportunities that God gives us and we use them to the fullest. I think of my own life. Unlike probably many of you, I grew up in a Christian home with two Christian parents who loved God. Yeah, that's a great privilege, but guess what? That's also a great responsibility. And God, I think, looked at me and said, okay, Jeff, you know, th that was a great privilege that you had a Christian home you grew up in, but don't, don't miss the responsibility that's there as well. The Bible, I mean, we've got God's word in our homes, probably five, six, seven copies of it. Do we get into it? Do we read it? Do we really, again, take advantage of the privilege that we have? If we're a Christ follower, we've got the Holy Spirit of God, God himself living inside of us. Are we tapping into the power of the Spirit of God within us? All those things. I could go on and on. God 
through Paul, was simply reminding the nation of Israel, you've been given great privileges, but did you always use those privileges to draw closer to Christ? Or it was sort of like, eh, no big deal, you know? And they began to, you know, it's the old familiarity breeds contempt. It's like, really, we, we don't appreciate them as much and we don't see the responsibility in them as much. That was Paul's word. Because you'll notice in verse 6, Paul reminds his Jewish brothers and sisters, it's not as though the word of God had failed. Again, it's not a problem with God. God was faithful. And if God made a promise to the nation of Israel and they're not realizing it, it was because of their unfaithfulness. It wasn't because of God. And this is something we're going to see repeated throughout chapter 9. Because here's the message God wants to get to us tonight. And how we can apply this to our lives. God has given us all wonderful promises. We're going to look at some of those tonight in His Word. All of us have some of our favorite promises from God's Word that we cling to. And God is simply reminding us, I've given you some great promises. Believe them. Trust in them. Know that, that when I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. I am faithful to my Word. We're not always faithful to our word as human beings, but God is always faithful to his word. And God wants to remind all of us tonight, I will be faithful to my word. If I said I'm going to do it, I will do it. And so maybe even here tonight, some of you have come here tonight on Tuesday night and, and you're going through something in your life and God is just saying, you've got to trust me. You've got to believe in those promises that I've told you. And maybe you're even wrestling with the fact of why is my life not as as blessed as I think it should be or could be or whatever. Maybe one of the reasons is some of the promises that you're thinking you should be enjoying, you're not because they're conditional. And maybe God said, well, if you would do this, then I would do this. In fact, real quick, keep your finger there in the book of Romans and go back to the Old Testament book of Joshua. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you'll come to the book of Joshua. And in Joshua chapter 1... This is just one of those conditional promises that just I remember from the Bible. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, notice what God says to the nation of Israel here. He says, this law scroll must not leave your lips. You must memorize it day and night so you can carefully obey all that is written in it. Then you will prosper and be successful. You see, there, there are folks that I want to be prosperous and successful. How obedient am I to God? God says, if you're obedient, I'll bless. I'm not going to bless disobedience. But if you obey and you, you, you know, as the promptings of the Holy Spirit move in our lives, as if we follow and we obey, God says, I'll bless. So there's many times where those promises are conditional. And God is simply reminding us of that back in Romans chapter 9. If you go back then to Romans chapter 9, again, I just want to point out that many of these promises to Israel were conditional, realized by faith and obedience. In fact, go to verse 30 of Romans chapter 9. And I just want to read the last passage of this chapter because it really fits here more than it does at the end where it is included here right before chapter 10. Because notice Paul says, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness obtained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, even though pursuing a law of righteousness, did not attain it. Why not? Why did the Jews get it and the Israelites not get it? Here's why. Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were possible by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Look, I am laying in Zion a stone that will cause people to stumble, and a rock that will make them fall, yet the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. I love that. God is saying, you believe in me, you trust in me, you'll never be put to shame. You'll never be disappointed. It'll never be like, well, that promise wasn't as wild as I thought it was going to be. No, God always says, I'll exceed your expectations. In the book of Ephesians, God says, I can do exceedingly abundantly above all that you can even ask or imagine or think. Now, I don't know about you, but I can think an awful lot of stuff. I, I can dream an awful lot of stuff. I can imagine God doing an awful lot of stuff. And God says, you keep trusting in me and I can even exceed your wildest expectations. And it's not the amount of faith that we have. Don't focus on your faith. 
Don't focus on the amount of your faith. Focus on the object of your faith. God. That's why Jesus said you and I could have faith the size of a what? Mustard seed. You know, mustard seed is probably one of the smallest seeds out there. It's not the size of our faith. It's the object of our faith. It's that we're looking to God to do because it doesn't matter what our circumstances are, what our problem is, what our obstacles are. God is always bigger than any of it. And God wants to remind all of us, we've come here tonight, I don't know what you're dealing with in your life, but here's what God wants to remind all of us tonight. I'm bigger than anything you're facing right now. Trust me. Believe in me. My promises are real. They are true. You can embrace them, and it's going to make a difference in your life. Back to then to Romans chapter 9, the first couple of verses. Notice then this. God, beginning in verse 7, says, Not all are the children of Abraham's true descendants. Rather, through Isaac will your descendants be counted. And this is what he's getting to, verse 8. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. Rather, the children of promise are counted as descendants. And in this passage, just to sort of cut through all the muck, here's what God is saying. I want to do something supernatural in your life and in your midst. And he uses two gals out of the Old Testament, Sarah and Rebecca. That's why they're used here. Why? Because God says, I'm going to supernaturally produce a child and a, and a woman who's over 100 years old and past the age of bearing children and could never bear children. She was, I'm going to produce a child. Well, if you know the story of Abraham and Sarah, you know that even though God gave them that promise and God told them to wait on the fulfillment of that promise, they couldn't wait. They had to get their hands into it. And so, you know, they get out there and they get this servant, Hagar, and they bring her in and Abraham has relations with her and another baby is born. God says, guys, I wanted to do something. That baby was produced by the flesh. Now, trust me, God, God didn't want them, you know, not to love and care for the baby and all that it had nothing to do with the baby. It was just how it was born. God says, look, I want to do something supernatural that only I can get the credit for. I want to do a miracle here. And you, you're circumventing by, by doing it by the flesh. And then Rebecca, God allowed Rebecca to supernaturally have a child, even though, you know, she couldn't. And all God is saying here is, look, if you trust me and you believe in me, you will begin to see in your life and in your midst, you're going to begin to see miracles take place. You're going to begin to see things that only God can do and only God can get the credit for. That's what God wants to do. And we have to really believe that. If, if I don't really believe that that's what God wants to do in my life and in my midst, but God says, if you believe it, it's going to happen. And we see miracles happening every week around Cornerstone here. Many of you are miracles. You're here and you're where you are with God and all that because of just the miracle of God and how God worked in your life. God wants to continue. Listen, God doesn't just want to perform a miracle in our lives to bring us to Jesus Christ. He wants to bring and, and impart miracles and supernatural things in our life after we know Christ. Salvation isn't the end, folks. It's just the beginning of a wonderful walk with God. And all of us, and you and I have to remind ourselves of this, we are walking miracles. Amen? Amen. Walking miracles. You see. I mean, just for the fact that we know God personally and, and how God did all that and created in us a new heart, it, we are walking miracles every day. And that's what Paul wants to remind the his brothers and sisters in Israel up. The problem was, again, though, that many times the Jewish folks would choose the flesh to do it rather than let God do it supernaturally. And God says, wouldn't it be better if you just let me do something supernatural in your midst, something that would be so incredible that only I could get the credit for, that nobody could look at man and go, well, the reason that happened is because you know, they, they were pretty sharp and, and they were pretty powerful and all. No, God says, no, it was all me. It was all me. And that's what Paul is saying here. Now, I want you to go down to a very troubling passage to many people. It's where God begins to make choices. The word election, predestination is used and people begin to shudder when they come to Romans chapter 9. 
But here's what I want to point out to you at the very beginning of this passage. The choices God makes in this passage deals with earthly privilege and responsibility, as we've already already said, not salvation. And that's where people get hung up. They come to Romans chapter 9 and they apply what is being taught here as, well, God chooses some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell. And I'm just saying to you from my heart, I believe that's a total misinterpretation and misapplication of this passage of Scripture. That what Paul is talking to his fellow Israelites about are earthly privileges and earthly responsibilities. Notice, beginning in verse 10, let's just start there. Not only that, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our ancestor Isaac, even before they were born or had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose and election would stand, not by works, but by his calling, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now, I just want to stop there. I know that language seems awful harsh. But in the Greek language, you've got to understand that the concepts in verse 13 are not to be viewed as feelings that God has towards these two, but as a decision that God took. And that's all that language means. I mean, for us to say God hated Esau would be to contradict the rest of what the Bible teaches about the nature and character of God. The Bible teaches God is love. The Bible says God so loved the world. The Bible says God loves everybody. So when you come to a verse like this, where this language is used, we have to be very careful that we don't yank it out of its context and yank it out of the context of what else is being taught in the Bible about the nature and character of God and go, well, God just damned Esau to hell. No, that's not what he's saying. All God is saying here is, I'm choosing Jacob for an earthly privilege that I'm not choosing Esau for. In fact, I would say to you, I've made this challenge to other people. I believe Esau's going to be in heaven. So that really blows it up, doesn't it? Because I don't think it has anything to do with Esau's eternal destiny. I don't think there's any verse or passage in the Bible where anyone can go to and say, well, Esau's not going to be in heaven. I don't think this has anything to do with heaven or hell. It has to do with earthly privilege. And God was just going to give Jacob a privilege that he was not going to give Esau. Guys, he's done the same thing in our lives. I wish God would have given me the ability to be able to throw a baseball 100 miles an hour. But God never gave me that ability. God gave that ability to Roger Clemens or Randy Johnson instead of me. Okay? When God created all of us, he gave all of us a unique set of abilities, talents, spiritual gifts, and none of us as human beings are just like the other. And we could all look around the world and go, well, how comes God didn't give me that or give me that or whatever? It's totally God's choice. Totally God's choice. But there's a reason for it. And in God's wisdom, we have to leave why God did what he did with God. Because again, we've got to trust him. We've got to believe that he knows best. And it's not like he's favoring what it's just it's an earthly privilege. But with that privilege comes responsibility. You see, some people would come to the book of Romans and say, well, God wasn't fair in giving Jacob an earthly privilege that he didn't give Esau. But with every privilege God gives, there's also a corresponding responsibility. Do we really want that responsibility or not? In fact, you'll notice in verse 14, Paul sees the objection coming (laughs) He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? Is God not being fair? And notice Paul's response. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In fact, what Paul's going to continue to go down through here and say is this. However God created us, and then whatever choices man makes based upon the revelation God gives him, God can use both those who know him and those who don't know him to bring glory to him. And the example he uses here, that's the best example from Scripture, and and Paul uses it then in Romans chapter 9 and verse 17, is Pharaoh. It's Pharaoh. And the Bible says that because Pharaoh hardened his heart against God over and over and over and over again, finally God confirmed Pharaoh in the hardness of his heart, and yet God used Pharaoh. 
This world ruler who did not believe in him to magnify himself and his power in the world. Because again, God is not limited to just work through those who believe in him. God can work through anybody and everybody. God has used people who don't know him to speak to me in my life. And we all know that in the Old Testament, God spoke to Balaam, his prophet, through a donkey. God's not limited about how he works and what he can use or whatever. And so Paul is saying, even look at Pharaoh. Pharaoh was not a believer in God. Pharaoh rejected God over and over again. Moses, you know the story. You've seen the movie with Charlton Heston. Come on. You know that over and over again, Moses went to Pharaoh and said, you know, God says, let my people go. And the Bible over and over again, if you read that account in the book of Exodus, it says over and over again, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Even after every plague, you know, he would do this plague and Pharaoh would harden his heart. He wouldn't let over and over. It's not like God didn't give him a chance. It's not like God didn't show his power and glory. But over and over again, Pharaoh would harden his heart. And yet God said, even in the hardness of his heart, I was magnifying myself through him. But because he was hardening his heart, I was showing him that I, as God, am the one and only true God. And that the gods of Egypt were impotent. And that they were not God. And that every plague that Moses did through the power of God was actually to show that the gods of Egypt were no gods at all. And so God used even Pharaoh who did not believe in him. So that's why he goes on down here. Verse 19, Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who has ever resisted his will? You indeed, who are you, a mere human being to talk back to God? Does what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right to make from the same lump of clay one vessel for special use and another for ordinary use? And again, simply what God here through Paul is saying is, God is revealed in all kinds of vessels. And I don't even have to believe in him, but God can magnify himself and show himself through anybody and everything. We cannot limit God. Now, it should be my desire to become a vessel of honor to God and not be like Pharaoh and harden my heart and reject God. But God can use anybody and anytime, anywhere, anything. That's the way God is. The point that Paul is making through all of this is this, that God's word can be counted on. His word is true. His word is faithful. And when when you come to Romans chapter 9 and all of, of Paul's Jewish brothers and sisters are saying, why are we not enjoying the promises God gave us in the Old Testament? Paul's simply saying, because you weren't faithful. Because it has nothing to do with God not being faithful. It has to do with you and I not being faithful to God. All we have to do is be faithful and because many of these promises are conditioned upon our faith and obedience. And if we would simply turn and become faithful to God, we would enjoy the fruit of the promises of God. In fact, you'll notice in verse 24 of chapter 9, God's calling of both Jews and Gentiles who made up the church in Rome, because the church in Rome were made up of both Jews and Gentiles, is verified by the Old Testament scriptures. He quotes beginning in verse 25 from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, uh, Hosea. Excuse me. And notice God says through Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. And I will call her who was unloved, my beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Because God simply said, if this group of people won't respond in faith to me, I'm just going to look for somebody who will. I'm not just going to like beat my head against the, the door over here and just keep trying to ram myself down their throat. That's not the way God works. And that's the way God still works today. God comes to everybody and says, you want a relationship with me? You want to walk with me? You want to know me? Here I am. I'm as near to you as you want me to be. But if you don't want it and it's your choice and you walk away, that's fine. I'm not going to force myself upon you. The Bible teaches that the character of God is such that he's a perfect gentleman. And he's not going to force himself into any human being's life that that human being doesn't want him there. But if that human being wants to have fellowship with God and wants to have a relationship with God, God's all over it. He's right there, ready to say, okay, let's do this thing. Let's walk through life together. 
And the fact that there has been a Jewish remnant throughout history also speaks to the faithfulness of God. And that's what Paul's reminding them of here, beginning in verse 27. Paul says, guys, there's always been a small group within the nation of Israel, a remnant who have believed. And the promises are being realized through them as this remnant. And one day, one day, the unconditional promises that God did make to the nation of Israel are going to be realized. They are. They're still future yet. We haven't got there yet. So again, it's not that God's not faithful. It's we haven't gotten to some of those promises yet. But just the fact that Israel is in the land since 1947 is an unbelievable fulfillment of prophecy. I mean, you think about how the nation of Israel even came into being. And, and if any of you are students of history like I am, and you go back and begin to see how God brought the nation of Israel to where it is today, and, and to have that strip of land that it does where it does in the Middle East. Unbelievable. And then to think how God has preserved a remnant of Jewish people down through history. I mean, think about it. There was obviously a man a couple decades ago who was trying to wipe out every Jew on the planet and did kill millions of them in the Holocaust, but didn't get all of them, and God preserved a remnant. And then in this, the, the wars that Israel has fought and how God has preserved them. And what I'm simply saying to most of us here tonight who are Gentiles, If we doubt the faithfulness of God, look to the nation of Israel. Don't look any further than there to be encouraged that if God can take care of the nation of Israel and He can bring them into a land and He can preserve them and He can protect them, how much more will God do the same thing for me? I'm one of His children. He loves me just as much as He does them. And God's promises are just as true to me as they are to them as well. That's what Paul is saying here. Notice verse 27. And Isaiah cries out on behalf of Israel, though the number of the children of Israel are as the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will execute his sentence on the earth completely and quickly, just as Isaiah predicted. If the Lord of armies had not left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and we have been re- would have resembled Gomorrah. Isaiah said, if God wouldn't have been on our side, we would have been obliterated centuries ago. The reason there is still Jews alive on planet Earth and the reason there is still a Jewish nation has all to do with God and nothing to do with them. Because God was faith. God said, here's the way it's going to be. I made an unconditional promise to your father, Abraham, and I will be true to that promise. And that's why Israel is still here today. 2007 in the world in which we live. And that same God is the God of the armies of heaven today who's watching out and protecting you. In fact, let's go back to a couple of uh, passages that I love from the Old Testament. Go to the book of 2 Kings. I want to encourage you folks tonight. And here's a passage that I think will encourage you if I can get my fingers around it. Okay, I'm not even going to. Second Kings chapter six. Let me set this up really quick. There was a prophet named Elisha in the nation of Israel. And God was giving Elisha all this information that was driving the king of Syria crazy. Because the king of Syria was always trying to destroy Israel. And somehow Israel was always one step ahead of the king of Syria. And the king of Syria got so frustrated, he thought that there was somebody even on the inside that was feeding you know, them information in Israel. And his, his tr- most trusted advisor came to him and said, it's not somebody on the inside, it's that prophet Elisha. He gets these messages from his God and that's how they can stay a step ahead. Now, first of all, at that point, I think if I was a human king, I'd be going, okay, maybe I don't have any business doing what I'm doing here. But obviously, you know, sin can blind us. And so the king of Syria sends down his army, army, to basically take care of one guy, Elisha. He sends this huge army down to take care of one guy, Elisha, and his servant, whose name is Gehazi. So notice in verse 15 of 2 Kings chapter 6, 
The prophet's attendant got up early in the morning. When he went outside, there was an army surrounding the city along with horses and chariots. And like any good attendant, he goes back into the tent and he says to Elisha, Oh no, my master, what will we do? There's two of us and there's the army of Syria surrounding us. I think we're in trouble. Notice what Elisha says. He says, don't be afraid. That's what God wants to say to all of us here tonight. Don't be afraid, for our side outnumbers them. Now, I'm sure at this point, Gehazi's like, our side outnumbers them. There's you, there's me, you know. Notice what Elisha does. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he can see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw that the hill was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And guess what? The army of Syria did not even touch Elisha or his servant Gehazi. Now here's why I share that with you. Back in Romans 9, Paul, quoting Isaiah, says, We wouldn't even be here if it wouldn't be for the Lord who controls the armies. And he wasn't talking about physical earthly armies, although God can do that too. God can use those. He's talking about the spiritual armies. God is the God of the hosts of heaven. And at God's disposal, he's got the angels who he sends as ministering spirits, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, to minister to you and I. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 11, if you want to look it up. The writer of Hebrews says, are they, speaking of the angels, not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to you and I who are the heirs of salvation? Yeah, that's what the angel's primary mission is right now, to minister to us, to protect us, to, to, to just make sure that, you know, we're okay if nothing's going to touch us unless God allows it to. So next, starting tomorrow... Walk out the door without any fear, knowing that as you look around, you may think it's just me. No, it's not. First of all, it's you and God. And Paul says in Romans 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? I've got God on my side, or I should say we're on God's side at this point. And then we have at our disposal the entire armies of heaven, the angelic hosts, who are always there, that even though we can't see them physically with our eye, that by faith we've got to trust the promises of God that they are there for us. And they are watching over us. And they are there to strengthen and protect and provide whatever God wants them to provide for us. And then just go back a few books to the book of Numbers. Numbers is the fourth book of the Old Testament. To Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19. And if there's a verse to outline or underline in your Bible tonight from our study, I would encourage you, if you haven't already, to underline Numbers 23:19. It's a great summary of where we've been in Romans chapter 9 about the faithfulness of God and the promises of God. Because notice, Balaam here is saying in, in Numbers 23:19, God is not a man that he should lie nor a human being that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it happen? I love that. You know, man is unreliable. Even the best of men are still men. We're still going to fail each other. We're still not going to follow through all the time. But God is faithful to everything He's ever said. To every promise He's ever made. He will not lie. And if He says He's going to do something, He's going to do it. You can take it to the bank. See, that's why we have hope. We have hope because we base our hope on the sure Word of God. God cannot lie. And so, I don't know what promises maybe are flooding your mind right now or what passages of Scripture maybe God's Spirit has brought to your mind tonight. But as we've went through Romans chapter 9, I hope that you've been encouraged to re-embrace those promises that God gives us in the Bible. And to realize they're not there just to 
you know, make us feel good every once in a while when we get into a pickle or when life's not going the way we want to. These promises of God are there for us every day, every day to encourage us, every day to remind us of the faithfulness and character of God, that God will never leave us nor forsake us. And they're there for another reason. If you just jump over one more place, I'm sorry, these verses just keep popping into my mind. Second Peter chapter one, almost to the end of the New Testament. We're going from one end of the Bible to the other. Let me show you this and then I'm going to stop and see if there's any questions tonight. Because I know I've thrown a lot at you. In second Peter chapter one, beginning at verse two, Peter says, may grace and peace be lavished on you as you grow in the rich knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. I can pray this because his divine power has bestowed on us everything necessary for life and godliness through the rich knowledge of the one who called us by his own glory and excellence. Can I just stop there before I read the next verse and say to all of us as Christians, if you're here tonight and you're a Christian, that the Bible teaches us that God's given us everything we need. So many Christians don't realize that. And so I just want to remind us, God's given you everything you need, everything. Don't feel like somehow, you know, that, that Christian over there or, or that believer back there, they, they got more than what, no, God gave all of us everything that we need to live a life to bring honor and glory to him. But notice this next verse. This is the verse that really applies to where we are tonight, talking about the promises of God. Through these things, his own glory and excellence. He has bestowed on us his precious and most magnificent promises so that by means of what was promised, you and I may become partakers of the divine nature. Peter says, do you realize that if you and I as Christians, as Christ followers, embrace the promises of God on an everyday basis, it it helps us make progress in our growth and walk with God. These promises aren't just for when we get in a scrape and when life isn't going the way they should. These promises that we are to embrace and believe in and trust in are there every day for us. And as we embrace them and as we believe in them and as we live by them and as we count on them, God is going to transform our lives to become more like Him. That's what He says when He says, by these, and I love the the wording precious promises, most magnificent promises. Peter is giving language here to exalt the promises of God. And he says, it's through these promises that you and I may become partakers of the divine nature. My encouragement to you tonight is to leave this place just filling your mind and heart with the promises of God, standing on the promises, counting on the promises, believing in the promises, living by the promises, and letting the promises of God change your life and transform your life into all that God created it to be. I'll say one more thing. Just one of the promises, and I've shared this with some of you before. My father, who was my best friend, not just my father, died 17 years ago of pancreatic cancer. Talk about promises really being practical. Let's get down to the nitty-gritty of even death and how you deal with death and how you handle probably one of the things that as a human being we struggle with maybe more than anything else. The Christian, based upon the promises of God, my dad and I, we had a talk the night before he died. And we were reciting back and forth the promises that we were counting on to navigate through this difficult time of separation. And we both were counting on the promises of God like 2 Corinthians 5.8, which says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So my dad and I knew, here's one of the things that's cool about this. I may have to say goodbye to you very soon, but I know where you're going and I know where I'm going too. And it's not based on anything other than we have Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. There's a promise of God that could help in such a difficult situation. And then, more than that, there's the promise of God that for the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to join the Lord in the air. And so we shall all be with the Lord. 
So then dad and I are talking and going, well, you know, we're going to be separated for a while, but we're going to see each other again. And this time we're never going to be separated from each other because we're going to spend eternity together. It's those promises. It's those promises that can not only get you through the toughest times of life, like the death of somebody so close to you, but it's those promises that can keep us going on an everyday basis. And Paul is just saying here in Romans chapter 9, guys, God is faithful. God has given us magnificent and precious promises throughout his word. Read his word, study his word, come to the mind and let's learn about these promises. Let's embrace these promises, live on these promises, because these promises aren't just for times of death. They're for our everyday lives as we walk through life to encourage us and to remind us of all the blessings and all the things that God has done for us. Like as we've seen tonight from 2 Kings chapter 6, a whole host out here around us that we can't see physically, but they're here. And they're going to go with us home tonight. They're going to get up with us tomorrow and go through the day. And God's going to be right there as well. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6. There's a promise to embrace as well. All right. Questions? Yes. Right. No, that's true. It's true. And, you know, the cool thing is, too, that, you know, the question was about Ishmael and Isaac and all that and the world conflict today. And it certainly it traces back to the Bible in the book of Genesis. And, you know, the great thing is, though, that there there are many people out of those countries and many Muslims who are coming to know Christ. In fact, it's really cool. We've got many. I don't say many, but we've got several here at Cornerstone that are that know Jesus Christ is their personal savior going back to what Paul said in Romans listen you won't listen to me I'll go to anybody who will and God loves the world and there's going to be people in book of revelation from every tribe every nation every tongue every dialect cuz God offers his love to everybody and you can just see the hand of God in what God is doing all over the world and like you pointed out here's the cool thing I don't have to wake up as a Christian ever to fear what's going on in the world. God is on the throne. God is in control. God has a plan. And we don't have to fear what man's going to do. We don't have to fear what man's going to do. Don't fear. You know, sort of that thing. Sometimes I get like Gehazi. Lord, what will we do? And God says, Jeff, don't, don't be afraid. It's, it's going to be okay. I got everything under control. Okay, God, you know. Trust me, I've done that many times before tonight when we were in that room and I'd go to God on Tuesday and I'd go, God, what are we going to do? You know, please, God, you know, well, you can see God answers prayer. Amen. Amen. Yeah, we're glad God answers prayer. Yes. No, I, I didn't hit every verse tonight in Romans chapter nine. What specifically maybe are you thinking about? Right. But again, I think in the context, you have to be careful. I think because he used Pharaoh as a specific example, I would say Pharaoh is the object of destruction there. And again, what we have to realize is this. If you go back to Exodus and you read the account of Pharaoh very, very carefully, you will find 10 times in the book of Exodus where the Bible says Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then after those 10 times of Pharaoh hardening his heart, you come to chapter 9, verse 12, where it says God confirmed the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. So God didn't harden Pharaoh's heart and confirm him in that hardness until Pharaoh had hardened his heart over and over and over again. And finally, God said, that's it. I'm confirming you in that hardness. I think all that means is that God, in his omniscience, he knows everything. And in his wisdom, he knew that there was nothing he could ever do to bring Pharaoh to him. And so Pharaoh had ultimately rejected him and God confirmed him in that. And I think it just reminds us that, again, God can use even those who reject him to bring glory to him. And I think that's just what that's saying. And again, we have to understand it is hard for us as finite beings to realize that sometimes the language that's used here is talking about a God who knows the beginning and the ending of everything. And when it talks about the fact that God knew this was going to happen, and so that we have to understand that God sometimes acts because of what he knows is going to take place down the road. 
I, I agree that there's that whole, you know, the Calvinistic situation and all of that. I just personally believe this. I believe that anybody that wants to come to God can come to God. And that God, nowhere in the Bible does it say that God chose some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell. I do not believe that. As I shared back in that room a couple of weeks ago, if you study election and you study predestination and you study the context, it's always dealing with the purposes of salvation, not with the people who get saved and don't get saved. For instance, in Romans 8, God's purpose in salvation is that we be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 29. God's purpose in salvation in 1 Peter chapter 1, when it says we are elect to be obedient to God. God wants his children to be obedient. It's a purpose of salvation. It never has to do with that. It always has to, or never has to do with actual people who go and has not. It's always the purposes of salvation. I'll leave it at that. That's a big fish that we don't want to fry tonight. We got the room. All right. Guys, you've been terrific. I'm going to let you out here in just a moment. I'm sorry. I'm 252 here tonight. Yeah. Good, 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 good. Yeah. Um, before I close in prayer, Romans chapter 10 next week. Great stuff in Romans chapter 10. Hope you'll come back. Bring a friend. Bring your neighborhood. We've got the room. All right. Seth's going to be back to lead us in worship. I'm going to be back to, Lord willing, share more of God's word with you. But here's the thing. Leave with this. God is faithful. God's given us promises. Live by those promises this week. Embrace those promises. Go through the Bible and look for those promises. Those promises are precious, Peter says. They are the most magnificent things. And as we embrace them, we can become partakers of the very divine nature of God. God wants to encourage his people through his promises. I hope you will be encouraged tonight because God is faithful. He'll never go back on anything he ever promised you. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you so much for your promises. Thank you for your character. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the fact, God, that even though, you know, we live in a world where we can't count on other people, things are always changing around us. There's not a lot of stability and security that, God, in you, we can find security and stability. In you, we can find a character that will not change, a, a God that will not change his mind, a God that will not say, Jeff, I love you today, but I'm not going to love you tomorrow. Don't count on it. No, I can count on the love of God tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. I can count on his provision, his protection, because all the promises of God are good for all time. And God, help us to just embrace those promises again and live by them and include them into our lives, Lord, we pray in a greater way. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, have a great week standing on the promises. See you next week.